It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We started the crusade weeks ago right here on the Independent Republic of Mike Graham and like most campaigns that we start, the rest of the media has finally caught up with us when they realised that we were right all along. This morning, the Daily Mail has this headline on page one, We Must Rescue Ghost Town Britain. Well, of course you must rescue Ghost Town Britain. I've been going on about it for ages. They quote Caroline Fairbairn, uh, the Director General of the CBI, who writes that getting people back into the offices of this country is as important as the return of children to school. They are late to the party, but their support is nonetheless very welcome. They, Of course, inside the paper, uh, they provide a handy list of companies that are failing in their duty to support the economy. And they also put to the sword any ludicrous arguments uh, put forward by the stay-at-home brigade, who I've been arguing with for now for quite some time, who think we have to change the way we all work the sort of people that say oh I don't want to go to work anymore we don't have to the world is changing you're a dinosaur I'll just sit at home in my underpants and I'll do just as good a job as I do in the office well guess what no you will not actually only yesterday JP Morgan the International Investment Bank admitted that their workers would be allowed to work from home for about half the week for the rest of time let's start hitting these companies and hitting them hard a tax should be invented like a fine for every employee that they don't bring back to the office this is now a critical problem for the economy and it needs to be sorted out immediately. We had Richard Tice on last week uh, who had the idea of actually taxing people who worked from home. I don't think that's the way to go. I think the way to go is to start taxing the companies who do not bring their employees back into the office. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be talking to author and thinker Helen Dale on the meaning of conservatism. We've got Simon Calder on a possible air bridge to New York that's being considered. And we'll be crossing live to California with LaDonna Harvey for the latest on the election battle the Republican convention and that shooting in Wisconsin. 0344-499-1000. Also, we'll be continuing to play Rural Britannia and Land of Hope and Glory just to annoy the lefties and just to cheer ourselves up. And we'll be advising our friends north of the border that they are now £2,000 better off, each and every single one of them, thanks to being in the United Kingdom. So forget about independence, because if you leave the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which also includes Scotland, you'll be Barassic and you'll be broke and you'll be worthless. 
That's what I'm telling you. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the late fastest growing radio station on the planet. This is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say that we have now got, as the first guest on the show today, on a show which is very, very important for the business world uh, of which we speak here in London, uh, but also in other parts of the country as well. Lance Foreman, uh, former MEP, businessman, of course, a man who runs a very successful and very marvellous uh, food company uh, in the East End of London. Uh, knows a thing or two about salmon as well. So if you need any expert help on that, he's your man. Lance, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you. Now, listen. Uh, I, I, good to see you back at work. Then yeah, you, listen. You, I, I've uh, never, I've never left Lance. I mean, I've been, exactly, I've been in this studio that. every single weekday since lockdown in March. You know, as I was saying to Julia Hartley Brewer, I haven't even had a holiday. My family went to Portugal. I got to pay for it. I got to drive them to the airport. I got to pick them up from the airport. But I didn't get anything to show for it apart from a piece of chorizo, which is not bad. Uh, but you know, that's that's my lot in life. I'm afraid. Well, the thing is, Mike. You see, you and I are essential workers. Yes. Now, just if you put the boot on the other foot, all these people that stay at home, um, do they consider themselves non-essential? Because if they are non-essential employees, I'm not very confident about their future. Well, that's an interesting point. This is one of the big problems of, um, you know, people staying at home. You know, if you can stay at home and work, why does your employer need to employ British people with high wages working from their homes in wherever they happen to live, rather than perhaps employing people in India and Argentina at mm. a fraction of the cost, who are also very well educated and can do a perfectly good job. Yes. You know, out of sight, out of mind, people need to be in the workplace um, to impress their bosses uh, and to help you know, build their businesses. Also, there's no doubt, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, Lance, that if you are in a working atmosphere, in an office, uh, or in a, 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 a place of, of, of work which is not an office, like a factory of some kind, you know, the proximity of people in the same place means that the ideas are better, that the business thrives, that, you know, people talk to one another, they get inspiration from one another, and, you know, there's no question that the business is more efficient and better if people are all working in the same room. That's absolutely right. You know, sometimes you have to be spontaneous in business. And if your team is around you, you know, you need to be able to just walk over to their desk and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? Yeah, right. Let's discuss it. You know, um, yes, you can work from home, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's not something that, you know, something can be done as an exception rather than the rule. And, you know, I think, yes, Zoom has been amazing during COVID. We're using it now, of course. It has been amazing because it has been a way that people have been able to work. But to have it as the default long term, I think, is just not going to work at all. No. Um, yes, I'm sure the technology will get better. But people do, you know, we are social animals. And you need to look into the whites of somebody's eyes when you're, you know, negotiating with them. And, um, you know, I also actually think, you know, speaking to people that have been using Zoom quite a lot over the last few mm. months, I think they're getting a bit tired of it. Yeah. And, you know, when they have now met, they've said, oh, my goodness, it's so much better meeting face to face, isn't it? Well, exactly right. It's like the first time I went out for dinner once they lifted the ban on, on restaurants on July the 4th. And the following week, I think it was a Thursday night, I went over to a friend of mine's place in Kensington. And actually just the act of sitting down around a table where somebody brought food to you that you hadn't cooked yourself was fantastic. It was absolutely liberating, you know. And also the thing about Zoom is that you can only do one thing. You can't have two Zoom meetings going on. You can only have one. 
one. Whereas when you're in the office, you could be dealing with about five different people talking about five different things in five different ways. Whereas, you know, with Zoom, I mean, the number of people, for example, in our business um, that I get to the point where they're like, oh, yeah, give me a call at three o'clock. You give them a call at three o'clock. They're busy. They say, I'll call you back. Suddenly it's five o'clock because they've had another two calls to take. And suddenly you don't actually talk to them all day. Whereas if they're in the office, you just literally wander up to them. You do. And, you know, the, you know, people often meet, as they say, by the water coolers or, you know, even over lunch, you might just grab a sandwich and sit down with a few people and chat about things. And you're not going to get that type of interaction. Mm. I did actually make a proposal to Zoom that they ought to have a little a button where you press, would you like to have this meeting catered? And then we would send out all the food to people. <laughs> but, uh, Very good idea. <laughs> I think they're sort of focusing more on their meetings than uh, having uh, having a bit of uh, uh, food and wine. Sure. Uh, but let's talk but, a bit about um, what we can do to get people back into their offices, because I'm looking at this kind of spread of companies that the Mail have done today. Rolls-Royce, Scottish and Southern Energy, Unilever, Linklaters, Airbus, National Grid, Microsoft. I mean, the list is endless of big companies who are literally employing um, thousands and thousands of people, but only a very small percentage of those people, sometimes less than 5%, are actually back in an office. Well, look, this was always, uh, you know, we, we chatted in March, Mike, and, and I said to you, I thought that the furlough scheme was the wrong approach. Yes, you did. This incentivizes people from uh, working and, and it's very hard to get people back into it again. And, and I think, you know, we also chatted a few weeks ago about the, um, the, the help out to eat out. Yeah. You know, it's all very good getting people to go out to restaurants, but you need to get people to go back to work. Yeah. Maybe what Rishi Sunak should have done you know, either instead or as well as, is, uh, you know, offer people half price on trains. You know, it costs the same to run a train, whether you have one passenger or a thousand passengers. Mm. So those costs are ongoing. You know, we've got to get people in. If we can say to people, look, you're going to have free tube tube travel for the next three months, but you've got to get back on it. Maybe that would maybe that would incentivize them. The cost is there anyway. So let's just get, you know, incentivize people to get back into the office. Well, I wonder whether that would work um, as well as, for example, promising not to so much incentivise businesses, but you could. I mean, one of my ideas was to give people a month's tax free holiday so that if they came back to work in an office, they would actually have, say, for example, the month of September or October uh, without having to pay any tax. Richard Tice was on the other day talking about uh, actually taxing people to work from home. I don't think that's the right idea, but certainly there needs to be some kind of financial inducement. I mean, I was out yesterday. uh, I went to Fish, the restaurant in uh, Borough Market and had some very nice fish and chips and I said to them oh have you included the um, you know eat out to help out whatever it is in there and they went yes and I suddenly thought to myself I'm actually subsidizing my own lunch what's the point well no, that's that's not a bad <laughs> idea I think, I think um, tax incentives also always tend to work better than uh, tax punishments mm. um, but um, yeah and I don't think Richard Tice's idea of taxing businesses you know you don't stimulate an economy by taxing uh, people more. So I don't think that would work. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. If you go back to what Boris said about, uh, you know, during his leadership campaign, he always talked about, you know, having a balance in the economy between the private sector and the public sector. And he talked about these two wings of a bird and they have to be in balance. Mm. And I, I've always seen the economy differently. I, I see the economy as sort of, two pedals of a car you've got the accelerator and you've got the brake yeah it's only the private sector that can drive the economy you know the private sector is the accelerator it's the government that is the brake 
Now, they can get the economy moving faster by taking their foot off the brake, yes. but they can never drive it. And I think what they did with lockdown is they screeched those brakes on, emergency stop. They've got to take the foot off the brake now yeah. to allow the private sector to accelerate again. And it does look as though the furlough money is going to be stopped, doesn't it? And I worry slightly, not because uh, because I agree with you at the end of the day, it's probably something they had to do, but they probably did it for too long. Um, there's going to be a massive kind of bad effect, I think, from people uh, who, once they come off furlough, are going to find themselves out of a job. Yeah, well, look, people, people have had a good time during furlough. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, They've been paid, sitting at home, often doing nothing. We've had amazing weather since March, you know, a few bad patches, but by and large, it's been absolutely fantastic. And a lot of people have had second jobs. You know, they've been getting paid perhaps 80% from their first job, but actually going out and earning a second salary. And yet they weren't allowed to work, you know, even part-time in the early days for the, for the firm that yeah. was their principal employer. Right. So again it was you know I, I you know i realized that you know they, they had to cobble something together in a bit of a rush but i really don't think the incentives are right that's history but we've got to get the thing moving now and yeah ending furlough you know we have to you know you've got to draw a line under it we've got to move forward but if there's some incentive that we can have to get people back to work i don't think that would be a bad idea no i think that's absolutely right because it certainly looks as well now as we saw at the weekend that there was a lot of people on furlough who have been working all the way through anyway which means they didn't actually qualify for the furlough and they should give the money back well that's right i mean you know and again you know the scheme made it you know it's almost impossible to control and yeah, yeah, there are reports now that about six million employers employees have been getting their furlough pay, and their employers have been forcing them to work, and and that is absolutely outrageous. You know, I don't know if there's a way we can track it, and you know, I don't know if it's possible, but it's absolutely, you know, to be honest, it is fraud yeah. uh, on behalf of the employers. Um, you know, but you know, this was always the case. You know. <laughs> It was always going to be a very difficult one to control mm. when you, you know you're setting this thing up sort of in a in a panic in an emergency. Um, but you know, again, we are where we are. Yeah. We can't keep parking back. We've got to move forward. Just I just of, I just get uh, the sense, Lance, that there's an awful lot of people who are feeling very comfortable sitting at home and I don't really blame them it's a bit like you know the migrants who are coming here from across the channel of course they're going to come because it looks like they have a much nicer time uh, if they get here than if they stay where they are similarly if you're working from home and you're spending more time with your family and you're not actually having to get on a train or commute uh, and, and get into a smoky horrible nasty business of getting into the city every day of course you're going to go I'd rather stay home but that doesn't mean you don't have a duty of care to the economy and to the general good that you have to start coming back into work so that people People who are employed by your being here actually can have a have a, a way of making money. Yeah, well, that, that that's um, that's the thing. You know, we we've um, you know what's crazy now is that we're not in that COVID panic situation no. anymore. You know, we know much more about it now. We, we have ways of treating it in some cases. Mm. We know who the vulnerable people are. We know so much more about it. This is not high risk now. You know, the, the number of deaths, I believe, um, in the UK since July from flu have massively outweighed the ones from yeah, COVID. Right. You know, it's crazy that we're even talking about this. We should be just back to work. Obviously, vulnerable people, elderly people should be, you know, more aware, of, not aware, but they should protect themselves more from the risk because they are the higher risk people. But everybody else, you know, it's over. Let's just get on um, and, uh, you know, 
we, we need to stop, you know, and again, I sort of get a little bit frustrated because I always thought that Boris was, you know, a little bit sort of libertarian and uh, didn't like, you know, you know, he, he believed in the common sense of the British people. And yet we become a real, you know, we become rules Britannia. Yes, <laughs> Britannia. very good. Very good. I like that. <laughs> rules Britannia. And funnily enough, actually, when he came out and said that the BBC were being terribly wet about the whole Rule Britannia thing in the last night of the proms, I actually thought maybe Boris is getting his mojo back. But you know what he said? He actually said, um, and I talked about this on a podcast yesterday, um, they didn't want me to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Now, I don't know who he means by they. I don't know whether it's Dominic Cummings who's told him that, you know, he shouldn't talk to the press. He shouldn't issue any statements of any kind. But people expect Boris Johnson to come out and say stuff like that. They expect him to defend Winston Churchill's statue. They expect him to defend last night at the proms. You know, they expect him to show some kind of leadership. So maybe, maybe just he's getting his mojo back. Yeah, well, you know, you'd expect Boris to say, you know, we want to be the land of hope and glory, but it's sort of, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're the land of no hope and worry at the moment. <laughs> You're getting very good at these slogans. I'll tell you what. Um, but listen, <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, uh, no, I mean, we, we need, you know, we need some positivity. I, I, mean, I do think, you know, it's fair to say that a lot of people just expected so much of Boris yeah. when, you know, he was on death's door. You know, you hear people that went through COVID and even three or four months later, they still haven't got their taste back and so on. Right. And we expected Boris to bounce back. And I think maybe our expectations were too high. But we do need his positivity. We do need that because... Uh, you know, pe- people, you know, we need to just stop all this worry. COVID is, you know, we know how to deal with it. We can move on from this now. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, the other thing, right, is I was watching the uh, uh, the First Minister up in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon's press briefing yesterday, uh, which she announced with a very sort of steely glare. Two people have died, you know, in the last 24 hours of COVID-19. I mean, more people die of motorcycle accidents up by Loch Lomond, I would have thought, on any given day uh, than, than actually die of COVID. Um, but I'd be delighted uh, if you would join me in, uh, in suggesting to the Scots um, that they're now £2,000 better off uh, thanks to uh, being inside of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And so the idea that they could ever leave uh, is a nonsense. Well, the, the thing that, again, baffles me about all these politicians is that they, they want this fantastic NHS and everything else, you know, all the other public services. But if you haven't got a private sector, you know, growing the economy, creating wealth, it's impossible to fund this stuff. Yeah. You know, the economy has to come, you know, it has to come first. Obviously, saving lives is crucial, but you can't save lives if you haven't got a health service and you can't have a health service if you haven't got a thriving economy. So that is, you know, that underlies absolutely everything. Well, that's the point. You can't have a sort of a net, um, you know, sort of supply of money going the wrong way into the government. Because if the government is paying everybody not to work or paying people to stay home, you know, clearly um, that money will eventually run out and eventually people will get used to not doing anything at all for a living. And I think it's, you know, we were branded one of the laziest countries in the world the other day and we are apparently one of the last countries in the world to actually go back to work properly. I think there's something wrong uh, with the British working sort of ethic. Yeah, well, you know... (laughs) I think I say I think pe- people have enjoyed it too much, and and our furlough here was very generous. You know mm. that they did have furlough in other countries or similar type of schemes, but I don't. I think in Germany that the level of furlough. I know they're talking about extending the German one further, 
but I don't think the amount of furlough that people got was quite as high mm. as it was over here. Right. So yeah, Rishi Sunak was very generous with um, with money that he doesn't have. Mm. Uh, it's quite easy to be generous with taxpayers' money, but you know, taxpayers' money is a really precious resource, um, and and I think again that is something that sort of politicians and civil servants office, you know, uh, just miss mm. is, you know, it, uh, the people, you know, the working man and woman, you know, they really strive, they work hard to get their businesses going, they put everything in, and to see money wasted um, is just heartbreaking. That taxpayers' money should always be spent, apps, you know, should be spent wisely. Should, you should treat it, you know, even more preciously than you treat your own, uh, your own uh, hard-earned funds. Yes. Um, but uh, sadly, that's you know that's not the way of our, our politics today. It's just too easy to sort of talk about you know borrowing more, printing more, right. and that just sends just send, you know it's all the it's just the wrong signals. It's yeah. just uh, it's 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 not the way we're going to get out of this. No, I agree totally, Lance. Thank you very much indeed, Lance Foreman, very sensible man, former MEP, businessman of course, runs a very successful business and knows what he's talking about uh, when it comes to business. Unlike an awful lot of politicians who haven't got a clue or a Scooby or any number of other ways of describing not having a clue. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk radio. And as if you didn't have enough pleasure coming at you uh, orally, uh, you could actually watch us as well. Put on YouTube and watch the show live as well as listening to it. And I think you'll find uh, that your day will improve immensely. In fact, why don't we just give another blast of Land of Hope and Glory uh, while we decide to improve our lives immensely because it gives me a great deal of pleasure just to listen to it. Marvellous, isn't it? This makes you feel good. Now, Helen Dale um, is an Australian um, by uh, birth, so she may not feel quite as uh, the same as I do listening to Land of Hope and Glory, but I'm hoping that she'll uh, be at least slightly inspired by it. Helen, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. How are you? <laughs> very well indeed. My, Bri- my British hymn banger <laughs> is actually I Vow to Thee, My Country. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's my preferred banger, the one they played at Churchill's funeral. Right. But, it, I mean, there is something wonderful about those types of pieces of music that just give you a sort of... They kind of uplift you. Um, and also, the one that I, the, the way that I really like playing it is just because I know that it annoys all of these woke lefties, you know, who think that it's all about the British Empire and how horrible we all were. Well, it's, it, the whole point of that kind of music, and like the coronation hymns, like Zadok the Priest and that kind of thing, yes. um, are, are meant to make you feel better. Yes. You, you're meant to walk and they into do. a room and feel better, yes. And That's they, the and, whole point of that. And them. they absolutely <laughs> do. Now, let's talk about uh, feeling better. Let's talk about sort of where we are right now, because you wrote an interesting piece this week about conservatism and about how far we've sort of come from proper conservatism to where we are now. Well, this is the uh, the book that I reviewed for Law and Liberty, which is actually an American website. But Ed West is a British author. He's the deputy editor of Unheard. Mm. But he used to, and he has the most extraordinary history because this is a memoir of his life as a conservative when all he, basically all his friends um, aren't. And very occasionally he comes across a classical liberal or a libertarian Mm. and they can sort of get on because they agree on about 50% of things. But most of the time, all of his friends just aren't. And he's he's very funny in the sense that he describes what it's like to be constantly in the awkward squad his entire life. 
but he's also very perceptive and he as much as anything the book analyzes what conservatism is and why it's fallen out of favor mm. particularly in our public institutions and this is basically because all of them have been hollowed out to a very large degree and taken over by a very particular graduate class who even if they call themselves conservative it'll often only be on economic policy yes and they're just completely unrepresentative of conservative voters labor voters even lib dem voters uh, you, i mean you don't uh, these are the kind of people who shoot off to France for their foie gras. Yes. So uh, they're not going to be into the sort of the, that group of Lib Dems who are into, who are so strong supporters of animal welfare. Mm. Yeah. So you, you've just got a, a, a governance class. I wouldn't even call them elites because they don't necessarily have the most money, although they do have a lot of money. Ed West makes that point in terms of how much their income is relative to, say, his working yeah. as, a, as a journalist mm. or even yours working as a journalist. Um, well, what I think they, they have... They have I, authority what I, what and power. I, what, and what I think they have, Helen, as well, is they tend to have a kind of um, a history of money more than, say, people like me, because I come from a very working-class background in as much as my parents were both very working-class, but they moved up to kind of middle class, I would say, during their lives. My mother was a teacher. My father was an artist, uh, a graphic artist, I mean. Um, and mm. they, But they had both come from very working class Glaswegian backgrounds. So there was no money in the family. You know, there was no mansion somewhere in the Cotswolds that we used to all go to at the weekends, you know, whereas these people will have all of that. Yes, a lot of them do. And, and the book is very good on that. Mm. But he's more interested in... Cap he doesn't just capture that quality, but he's more interested in capturing the extent to which there's a uniformity of views mm. across a very broad swathe of British society. And it's excluded any form of cultural conservatism or social conservatism. Yeah. Now, to give you an, an idea of how serious this is, this I mean, you played it at the beginning, this silly nonsense over the proms. Okay, which is traditionally considered posh. It's something that I liked as a kid, but then my father's family in particular were quite posh. Yeah. Now, this you've got all this hoo-ha over not singing it and so on and so forth. I saw a um, poll that showed even of the supporters of the Black Lives Matter marches, which, um, you know, of those people who supported the Black Lives Matter marches, mm. not just people who were on them, but people who were pro supportive at home, only 21% of those people support the idea of not singing Rule Britannia or Land of Hope and Glory at yeah. the proms. Right. This is a really minority interest. The government, HM Gov, could literally just turn around and respond as finally Boris Johnson did by saying, no, this is silly nonsense, yeah, stop it. Right. But they could have done that weeks ago. Mm. You know, it's not even a case of having to be careful. And what uh, Ed West is very good at here is what has made, at explaining is what has made conservative governments with an 80 seat majority. We're not talking Theresa May or David Cameron here. We're talking a, a prime minister with a landslide mm. who is still comfortably ahead in the polls. You know, you, normally by now, um, the honeymoon is over. Uh, you would expect something like COVID, which hasn't been well managed, to have put 
the Conservatives behind Labour in the polls. Mm. They're still uh, they're still polling roughly what they were on in December 2019. Right. So you've got this government with a huge majority, and it's not just saying, "Oh, that silly nonsense, go away." Yeah. Because that is the appropriate response to this, but, but, and that's but, what but, Ed West captures so well. Is yes. because of those of that governance class, they take all this nonsense seriously, and they don't find out until they go chapping on doors, as people did in December two thousand and nineteen, and got people on the doorstep saying, "Oh, Jeremy Corbyn hates Jews," or saying, "Oh, he got up and announced his pronouns." That's a load of nonsense. Right. You know, they're just. <laughs> But this is the trouble, though, isn't it? Because I think we've now we're now dealing as well. I mean, I was talking to Kevin O'Sullivan about this yesterday. That basically uh, Boris Johnson, in 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 his, his statement about uh, the whole um, nonsense of the last night of the proms, he said they didn't want me to say this, but I'm going to say yes. it anyway. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean there are people in Downing Street who think that basically he shouldn't say anything because they're so risk averse? to the media, that they don't want him to kind of play into the media's hands by saying anything. I mean, surely that's his strength, isn't it? I suspect, based on what, and I mean, obviously you can see this is quite a fat book. I mean, it's a light read, but it's chewy in the sense that his his witty little comments that he makes everywhere, because he's very funny, um, are um, all very carefully backed up. But that advice that Johnson has been given may well come from a sincere conservative working in number 10 or in the ca- advising mm. the cabinet office but because of the sameness of the governing class in this country th- it will be seen as risky despite the fact that it's not mm. and the thing is because you're more inclined to take something from someone who is speaking to you face to face you talk to the spad who's saying oh if you say that you might annoy some people and then you've got the YouGov poll in front of you saying only 21% of the people who even back Black Lives Matter think mm. this is sensible. Right. You know, so the huge numbers of people of all sorts of ethnic backgrounds who might think Black Lives Matter in, the, in, an abs, in a wider, the way Keir Starmer described it, in a mm. wider sense rather than the organisation, which is clearly quite dodgy, which was yeah. when he said, no, you're dealing with people who want to defund the police. I used to be the head of the Crown Prosecution Service, get in the bin. Right. And that was the right thing to say. But both Starmer and Johnson could have said this much earlier, both of their respective remarks. They don't need to count out to these people. These ideas are enormously unpopular. Where they are popular is in the governance class. And Ed West talks about the, the extent to which conservatives have, of uh, even quite a mild sort, um, have just been chased out of the governance class. Right. So you've got all this silly nonsense, you've got all this woke nonsense running around the civil service, despite the fact that it's making a political argument and we're supposed to have a neutral civil service. <laughs> there was an article, yeah, yes. there was an we article in the critic about this. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this kind of thing. And it is to do with people who think they have a politics, but before their politics is this incredible uniformity of values. Mm. And, I mean, obviously, because he's worked for many years and he's been a lobby hack, that kind of thing, he describes the experience in his book of what it's like, where he is literally often the only one. And the the point is, because he's a, he, he admits he's quite a softly spoken person and n- disinclined to do the classic dinner party. You hear these horror stories of people's dinner parties heading south and huge arguments. He's disinclined to do that. He won't do that. He doesn't want to go around being a discourteous. No. 
badly behaved person. But having read your piece and, and, and not the book, but I've deduced some of the things that are in the book, he seems to also be saying that basically kind of social conservatism has all but disappeared uh, from public yes. life in as much as, you yes. know, you don't very often hear people who are anti-abortion, uh, who are pro-life rather than pro-choice. You know, basically everybody kind of, if you if you tap any uh, politician on the shoulder and say, what do you think about abortion? And they all go, uh, uh, it's a woman's right to choose. That's all they ever say. They don't know, there's nobody saying anything else. Yes, so social conservatism and cultural conservatism have greatly diminished. Yeah. Um, he makes a pretty compelling case that social conservatism shot itself in the foot with the hypocrisy. Yes. I mean, the whole back to basics thing. It, it, I mean, it is just fatal. And what's good about Ed West is that he he's very frank about this. He says, you know, it, when you're being written up as backs to basics in mm. viz and being caught, caught cottaging or, right. you know, with a mouthful of orange peel and all of this silly nonsense, right. it's very hard for people to take you seriously. Mm. But the problem is cultural conservatism, which is the stuff you've been talking about, like immigration issues yeah. which were huge were and are hugely important to people and played a large role in the brexit vote not the only role but a significant role we have mm. to acknowledge that particularly in the north and midlands yes um that, so you've just got this situation where um cultural conservatism which has always been a bigger part of british conservatism than the social conservatism that you get in america has been scooped up with the social conservatism no one's ever proven those people hypocritical they're just making an argument yeah. and i set it out last week on the independent republic about how a country does this on a bipartisan basis and solves the issue mm. and i mean if australia can do this and the labor party in australia can participate in this have this adult conversation as they did over a number of years then it can happen in this country as well yeah. and you just have to be willing to turn around whether it's over little things like the problems or big things like my immigration post-Brexit immigration policy and say, no, yeah. are completely unrepresentative. You know, we won an election. This is what's in our manifesto. Yeah. We are going to deliver it and you're going to deliver it or there's the door. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have seen the last night of the proms, quite rightly, as you say, as a slight distraction and not very big of a deal. However, kind of the final straw. People have seen it as like, all right, that's enough. All right, forget it. You've now gone too far. You've now got to the point where you don't want us to listen to a song, which we've been listening to all our lives, which our parents listen to, which our grandparents listen to, uh, which is a symbolic uh, piece of music. It's not the end of the world if we never hear it again, but stop messing about with our culture. Well, yes, it's the... I mean, particularly Rule Britannia, which really does have... Na strong naval history. It was yeah. written in 1745. It's quite an old song, and the and it's it, it's hortative. It's hortatory mm. um, in the sense that it's uh, people put s on the end of rules and they shouldn't. It's rule the waves. It's the navy at that time had significant challenges from the the, the, the Dutch Republic, uh, from um, yeah, particularly the Dutch Republic from Spain. You yeah. know, the navy still had significant challenges, so it was hortative. And the other thing that it was written during the relevant period is that Britons never will be slaves. Doesn't refer only to the uh, the American idea of the slave trade. We need mm. to get this out of our heads and stop importing all this silly American right. history. A lot of it refers, that line refers to the Barbary Corsairs, which was when North Africa was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. And their favourite party trick 
was to capture Europe, people from European coastal communities yeah. and enslave them um, in North Africa. And the women would finish up in harems and the males would be galley slaves. Right. That was traditionally what, what was going on. Now, the Barbary Corsairs, the, the, the Second Barbary War, wasn't completed until 1815. Rule Britannia is written in 1745. And one of the things that was emerging in the period when the song was, run, was written was that both Britain and the Netherlands, because they were emerging naval powers, were much harder for the Barbary Corsairs to go to coastal communities and kidnap people and sell them into slavery. It still happened most notoriously in, in Ireland mm. and in, in County Cork, where my mother's family is from. An entire village, ironically called Baltimore, <laughs> was actually enslaved, all of them. An entire Irish village was taken. Right. You know, so you, I mean, people are just being, even when they're talking about these songs, they're being completely ahistorical in mm. their treatment of them. You know, and also the whole Barbary Corsairs and the Barbary Pirates, this is going on at the same time as the Napoleonic Wars. So it gets occluded and, and people don't see that history. So, I mean, it's just ahistorical nonsense, mm. a lot of what's being said. Right. And as far as the conservative uh, notion that we started this conversation about, has that been lost forever, do you think? I mean, will there ever be a return to a proper conservative party? Because once again, you know, when you see things about the, like, green policy, I sort of, sh sort of stand around shaking my head and go, well, what the hell are you doing? Who are you appealing to here? Now, I spoke to a very senior member of the Conservative Party the other week, and he said, look, the thing is, we've got to appeal to as many people as possible. And as much as it might be um, our kind of instinct to, to bat away the climate change people and Extinction Rebellion, we also know that if we appear to be more friendly towards that lot, uh, they may actually vote for us. Well, there is, to be fair, I mean, and Ed West does make the point in this book, there is a tradition of environmentalism that is conservative. Hence, mm. it used to be called conservation. Yeah. And you can, that is a real tradition. I mean, Roger, Sir Roger Scruton wrote, and I think I've got it on my shelves here, um, Green Philosophy. Yeah. You know, so there, there is a conservative way of capturing that environment vote. Right. Um, but, I mean, to be, uh, back to your headline question, though, about where is conservatism gone, Ed West is really pessimistic. He thinks because of the capture of institutions by a governance class that and they all basically agree with each other regardless of what they say their politics are he thinks that conservatism is really stuffed unless you finish up with a situation and this is not actually very good either and the last part of his book he goes into this you know there was a period when conservatism and conservative media was really very silly the tabloids behaved atrociously in the 80s and it cult then it culminated in the whole news of the world disaster right. you know so there was a period when they behaved very badly. And then Ed West goes on onto and does a sort of like a run sheet of the way the modern left media is behaving. Um, you know, people like Vice, you know, the, which, get, which get called the AIDS of the internet, which I think is hilarious. Right. But all these left-leaning outlets, they're just dreadful. They're just dreadful and cheap and there's no work goes into it. And they're, all they're trying to do is get clicks to drive advertising. And of course, there's no advertising during COVID. So you've got problems there. And he, he makes the point, he says, you're being stupid idiots, the way the news of the world was a stupid idiot before Murdoch had to get 
rid of it because yeah. of the disgraceful behaviour. Um, and the, the danger, of course, is you have two entire intellectual and political traditions that are major traditions. You know, the liberal left, which probably easier, sort of Harold Wilson, Tony Blair's a bit mm. shallow by comparison, but also... Tony Blair's a bit shallow by comparison to anyone, really, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> deep as a pat of butter, my father used to say. Um, and then you've got... So you've got conservatism fatally damaged by going down market, but now you've got the left doing it to themselves as well. Mm. And he, he just talks about this ongoing culture war is just going to be even longer and more boring and hysterical as a result of people behaving in on the at the worst of their tradition yes. rather than the best of their tradition yes. basically i think i think that's absolutely right hysteria is the order of the day uh, we're out of time helen surprisingly it seems to go very quickly these days but listen we'll be back with you next week thank you very much indeed helen dale uh, writer lawyer political commentator talking about conservatism the truth about whether it will ever come back and whether this government will ever rediscover it i'm not sure they will to be honest it's not necessarily a terrible thing but i'd welcome your views on it 
We are indeed, and it's been a long time coming. We've been waiting since Joe Swinson resigned in yes. December for this competition, and finally we are here. It's only August. It's only been, what is that, eight months? I mean, I don't know why it's taking so long. I think I'm right in saying that they are about to make the announcement. So let's go. So Ed Davey and Layla Moran are vying to be the next party leader. Let's see if we can pick up uh, any kind of um, audio from there. I'm the Liberal Democrats, and I know you're not here to hear from Who me. Who is he? So before moving on to the result... Mark Pack, the President of the Liberal Democrats. I just want to him. briefly <laughs> but very sincerely say thank you to all of the staff and volunteers who have worked so hard to make this election run so smoothly and at such a challenging time. To the result. Eight months. There were 117,924 ballot papers issued, a record high for any of our leadership elections. Turnout was 57.6%. The votes for each candidate were... Let's go. Ed Davey, 42,756. Leila Moran, 24,564. And so Ed Davey has been elected the next leader of the Well done, Democrats. Ed. Congratulations. Well Ed. done, Ed. Uh, that doesn't figure, does it? I mean, 117,000 votes, right? Six, and, yeah, 60, I was wondering 000, if my maths were wrong. So 60,000 people voted for either him or Leila Moran. What to the rest of them, then? I presume spoiled ballots. Spoiled ballots? Well, I don't know. They're a very odd crowd, the Lib Dems, aren't they? I mean, very strange people. I have to say, um, whenever you meet Lib Dems, you think, yeah, I don't know what you stand for. I don't know what you do. Um, I heard that he was the front runner. I actually thought Leila Moran would win because he's so boring, Ed Davey. He literally, you know, would put a glass eye to sleep. Well, Ed Davey was very much the establishment candidate, wasn't he? Yes. He's been around for a while. He kind of knows what he's doing. People know him. Yeah. Lib Dems tend to like him as well. They see him as a safe pair of hands. Whereas you're right, Leila Moran was a bit more exciting. She yeah. was the up and coming one. She had quite radical policy positions. She's, and she's pansexual, famously, which kind of makes her stand out quite a long way from the rest of the crowd. Well, she's not a grey, boring man in a suit, is she? She's, she's very, not. very far from that. But Ed Davey was sort of your your classic safe pair of hands, a bit like Keir Starmer, really. Probably what people want during a pandemic yes. but Leila Moran interestingly she wants to move the Lib Dems left of Labour right. and take that as their niche now they don't have Brexit anymore mm. and I think probably that won't have gone down particularly well with a lot of Lib Dem members because yeah. if you think about Lib Dems in the southwest of the country yeah. which is kind of their stronghold isn't it exactly they're in London they're pretty much Tories in mm. all but the name yes. whereas in London obviously they're basically closer to Labour yeah. very very liberal but that's always been their problem hasn't it because the Lib Dems have, 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 have as I've always seen, have never really got anything that they can rally around because they believe in many different things. You know, it's a bit like, in a way, the SNP. The SNP believe in uh, independence for Scotland. But once you get past that, they all think something different. Well, that's the problem the party has now. Yeah. What is it for? Because it failed to stop Brexit. Yeah. And now it doesn't really have a position. Now Keir Starmer's brought Labour back to the economic centre a bit as well. They can't really be the old Nick Clegg, Tories with a no. heart, Labour with a brain mm. situations. They are really stuck at the moment as to how to make themselves a significant force. Yes. And actually, they're a very different type of party now. They don't look like they're going to be able to be back around that 50, 60 seat mark. And also nobody's interested in them because despite the fact that they gained all sorts of MPs during the last parliament before this one, um, they lost them all again because all they did was walk across the floor. They didn't actually, so as soon as they went to an election, they lost them all. Ed Davies actually talking. Let's remind ourselves of just how boring he is. Quality and protecting our environment. <laughs> I stand for fairness and for fighting to protect the rights of ordinary people. And I'm determined our party backs a Britain that works with other countries across the world for peace and prosperity. 
But it is my love of our party that makes me recognize that we must change. We have to wake up and smell the coffee. Nationally, our party has lost touch with too many voters. Yes, we are powerful advocates locally. Our campaigners listen to local people, work hard for communities, and deliver results. But at the national level, we have to face the facts of three disappointing general election results. The truth is, voters don't believe the Liberal Democrats want to help ordinary people get on in life. Yeah, I think that's about voters right. That's enough of that rubbish. Um, Sir Ed Davey named new party leader Lib Dems. 57% turnout. Let's go back to that. I mean, that means presumably of all the people who are registered as Liberal Democrat voters, less than two thirds of them could be bothered to actually vote. Well, and it has been going on leader. for a while. It's not like they haven't yeah, had the opportunity. It's not like, oh, I didn't have time because, you know, I had about four months that I could have voted for. Absolutely. I think as well, listening to that speech there, it's a real reminder of how weird political speeches sound when you haven't got a braying audience mm. to cheer you on. We saw it a lot with PMQs, which obviously yes. sounds very surreal with no audience. But it must be very tricky mm. as a political leader just speaking into a void, yes. thinking about the Republican and Democratic conventions in the States exactly. as well. It's been a, a well, bad time for we're looking forward to uh, Donald Trump's uh, speech tonight, aren't we? We're going to be uh, covering that, I dare say, tomorrow. But yeah, I mean, he was walking around with a mask on just before he got up on the stage. And so it's a very... It is a very weird time. But, I mean, we're getting it early, aren't we, back to uh, to Parliament next week? Because, normally speaking, we wouldn't have seen them until sort of the end of September or beginning of October. No, because of that very reason. The conferences cannot go ahead. So right. the Conservatives, Lib Dems and Labour are all doing online conferences. Right. So you can tune in for a, basically a Zoom event. But given how badly attended most of the main hall speeches are, particularly the Tory and Lib Dem conferences, I can't imagine it will be particularly scintillating to watch right. and they have that many there. But that means Parliament can get back earlier. So it'll be back on Tuesday. So we'll be back here for PMQs so next back week. For PMQs. And is that going to be a hole in their budgets as well? for these parties because they normally make quite a bit of money at conference don't they very much so it's a huge huge part yeah. of the party's budget mm. particularly the conservative party because obviously they have huge outgoings they're a big campaigning machine whereas they don't have the oodles and oodles of members that labor have just paying them five pounds they really heavily rely on those corporate tickets right. on getting people coming in with their stands and mm. advertising to people attending right exactly and i suppose the big story today outside of this uh, lib dem announcement is the 13 pounds a week promised by rishi sunak to people who might need a bit of extra help with um, with money to get through the uh, the lot the local lockdowns is that right I believe it's £13 a day, so it's oh, in keeping with statutory, statutory sick pay. I mean, it's it's still not fantastic, but it is slightly more right. than that. So essentially, if there's a local lockdown, what will happen is basically you'll be contacted by mm. NHS Test and Trace, you'll take a coronavirus test, you'll self-isolate. The government are concerned that if people won't get paid if they don't go into work, then they just simply will not self-isolate, which obviously right. creates huge problems. So yeah. this is meant to basically cover people who can't work from home and make sure that they actually can isolate mm. without causing any major financial hardship. Right, because the furlough money is going to run out soon, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of people very concerned about that, particularly in hospitality trade, where people that I know uh, who have been paying their workers on furlough because they haven't been able to work are now going to not be able to pay them because they can't make any money, particularly nightclub owners, um, because of the fact that they can't open. 
Very much so. And the opposition have been calling for a while for the government to show more flexibility on this. So maybe keep furlough for certain industries, certain parts of the country, nightclubs, but not yeah. restaurants, for example. Right. Obviously, once again, that is more money being thrown at the problem. But I wouldn't rule out the government showing some flexibility on that. They've pretty much held the line with all these financial things yeah. that we're not doing it. We're not doing it. They said they wouldn't do what they've just done today. And now here we are. They finally are. do do it. And you do wonder. I mean, we, we are. I read that uh, tweet out earlier on about the excluded, uh, the, the mm. sort of the people who have been paying tax paye for a long time, but are considered to be freelancers. And it really does seem unfair that they're not being covered here. It does, and they've been really pushing this agenda. There are a lot of MPs who are absolutely up in arms about this. Mm. But there are also a lot of other people who don't get covered by the furlough scheme. So if you joined slightly too late your current job, then yeah. you wouldn't be included. There are freelancers who, if they have certain tax arrangements, have been in trouble because of that. So it has failed to hit every person. But right. Rishi Sunak has said all along, we can't help everyone. We can't save every yeah. job. And this is a monumental undertaking that the government oh, has had to do. And the two big stories, I suppose, that are still hanging around in terms of which uh, stories actually fascinate the Tory party itself. We've got a group of Tories writing to the MP, to the PM, about the migrant crossings, saying that they need to have a change of the law. So no, no, that will be addressed hopefully next week. Um, but also people writing to him about getting London back to work, getting cities back to work, getting everybody back into offices. I think both of those things are going to become real issues mm. for the government over the next few weeks. There are a lot of Tory MPs, as you say, who really want the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister to get a grip on crossings in the English Channel. Yeah. And they haven't really had an outlet for that. But of course, with Parliament coming back, they can really start to cause some trouble for the government if they don't listen to them effectively. And then you've got, as you say, this pressure to bring people back to work. Yeah. Boris Johnson has said you should all be back in your office, mm. go out, buy your coffee on the way and go to the pub on the way home. We yeah. can save the economy. But he's, I mean, he's got it within his power to make sure that the civil service say, begin that particular process, which he hasn't done. He hasn't. Well, look, we don't know the exact numbers. I haven't obviously seen exact numbers of who is in the building and who isn't. But anecdotally, I've spoken to a fair number of civil mm. servants and they say they walk around and the buildings are pretty much empty. Yeah. They are incredibly socially distanced. One was telling me the other day that there's one person for every five banks of desks yes. at one point. So it is not a bustling, life-filled place at the moment. No. And schools have to come back. Parents have to have confidence. There will be those who say, if you're not going back, why should we send our kids back? Well, exactly right. And of course, uh, my favourite social distancing story is the one about the Information Commissioner who won herself a Plank of the Week uh, last week for uh, being off in Canada, working from Canada uh, from home, which is rather extraordinary. But uh, yeah, we'll see whether they can all fix that up. Charlotte, look forward to Provinces questions next week. Uh, look forward to talking to more of you coming up as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Should we not have another blast of uh, Real Britannia or God, uh, whatever it is? Uh, what about Land of Hope and Glory? A little bit of that. Should we have some of that before we speak to LaDonna Harvey in California? What a good way to introduce her. Thank goodness the BBC put us in this situation, right? By the way, how about this from uh, uh, somebody called Steve? The Lib Dems will need another vote to confirm the result was the one they wanted. <laughs> 
a second referendum even. Well, I hope they get more people in involved in actually voting for it. 57% turnout in their own party to vote for the new leader of the party. It's not very good, is it? Let's talk to LaDonna Harvey. LaDonna, very good morning to you. And a good morning to you. Now, I hope you're as stirred and as patriotically infused as I am listening to Land of Hope and Glory, which the BBC are trying to ban. What? Why? Because it's uh, <laughs> it's horrible. It reminds everybody about our terrible past of the British Empire when we killed millions of innocent people and generally enslaved the world, apparently. Okay. Well, you know, we did the same thing over here. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, history, history does have a tendency to be bloody and nasty, and uh, he who wins gets the spoils. Yeah. Nasty, and, brutish, and you know, short, we used we to call like it. That. We used to call it nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, which I used to think was a description of Michael Dukakis, but that's another story altogether. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about the Republican National Convention because uh, we've got uh, the Donald making his speech tonight, presumably, uh, which we're very much looking forward to. Yeah, and I expect that he will fire up his base uh, like nobody's business. If there's anybody who is really, really good at communicating to exactly who he wants to communicate to. It's Donald Trump, whether yeah. he's doing it through Twitter or going on TV. So I would expect it to be a, a pretty fiery uh, and exciting to those who, who are supporters of his speech. And, you know, those who don't like him will continue to hate him. Yes. It's the strangest thing. It really is. And he's doing it from the Rose Garden, which is quite a clever move, isn't it? Because there's nothing like reminding people who the president is when you're talking right. about wanting to be the president. Right. And and that's something that the Democrats have really taken issue with is, you know, he's at the White House. Well, he's in the White House. Right. I, I don't know what you want to do about it. You want him to pretend he's not in the White House. Shut up. He's not doing this for you. No. He's doing it for his base. Right. And I mean, it's been a very weird sort of season, hasn't it? With the with the Democrats last week, this virtual kind of dem- uh, convention business. We, we're kind of going to be doing the same thing with our with Labour Party, the Tory Party conference as well, where you can't quite get into it in the same way that you would otherwise, um, you know, be looking forward to a speech in front of thousands of people cheering clapping and all the pomp and ceremony it's a bit weird it's very strange i mean it was strange for the democrats it's strange for the republicans um it's it, it's not terribly effective to, to be perfectly honest right. i mean it's just not a great way to fire people up when there's no sound at all no <laughs> I, I know it really is for fun I mean, the sports situation here is, 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 is one where they occasionally will, will offer you the opportunity to have fake sound, if you wish, when you're watching the football. You can turn on a fake crowd noise, you know, as, uh, as you go, or you can have no, no noise at all. I wonder if you should have that option uh, to turn on the sort of I, cheering for, for, for Donald Trump. I'm actually kind of surprised that they didn't do it, both with the Democrats <laughs> and the Republicans. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's the magic of TV. You can make it do whatever you want. You might as well just, you know, fake it until you make it. Yeah, right. And what's Joe Biden been doing this week while this has all been going on? Because traditionally they sort of sit down and keep quiet. But I guess this is not traditional um, a sort of toe to toe fighting, is it? It's no, it, there's nothing about this that, that is anything even approaching normal. Mm. Um, he has been pretty quiet. Um, they are generally pretty quiet in each other's conventions, but you know you're dealing with Donald Trump, so this is a different uh, this is a different thing entirely. No, quite. Um, let's talk about the other big story from there because there's an incredible picture on the front page of the Times here today, which I'm sure you've seen. But it's of a young white guy uh, wearing what looks like a pair of jeans and a kind of a, a, a greenish short sleeved shirt, but he's got a rifle in his hands. He's kneeling down uh, and he's in Wisconsin, basically uh, shooting people. 
Right. 17 years old. Yeah. I, you know, I'm trying to think at 17, I could barely get it together enough to go to school. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't understand why somebody would do something like this, but yeah. obviously he did. Two people died yeah. in that protest um, because of this kid, allegedly. So do they uh, think that he so was the shoot? He was the actual shooter that killed them? They do. Wow. The, the police are saying that it's this 17-year-old boy, yeah. essentially. I guess young man. Right. I don't really even know how to explain him. Right. Uh, yeah, I I'm still trying to wrap my head around it because I saw it this morning and I went seventeen. Yeah. Are you kidding? I know. But I kids kids are kids can be incredibly violent. They can be. Yes. Uh, apparently, this is one of them. And also, they can. I presume. I don't know what the age is uh, in terms of uh, when you're allowed to have ownership of a gun. Is it sixteen in America, or does it depend on the state? I think it depends on the state. Um, with long guns, generally used for hunting, it's assumed that you can handle a hunting rifle. Right. Um, hunting people is is not exactly what it, what it's meant for. No, of course. And this, of course, comes in the wake of the second sort of big uh, shooting of, of a black man by the police, uh, this time in Wisconsin, in a place called Kenosha. Uh, the guy's been shot seven times in the back, um, and he's still alive. But, you know, it's, 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 it's Minneapolis all over again, isn't it? It is. Um, it's, he was, it's a really strange, it's hard to tell what he was doing. Yeah. He was getting into or reaching into his vehicle. Um, and apparently he wasn't even involved in the domestic violence issue. Right. He was actually trying to break it up is what we're so it wasn't. So the domestic um, violence call that was made to the cops was not about him. No, it, he apparently was trying to get in between the people who were involved in the domestic violence. Yeah. Uh, you know, cops roll up on the scene. They don't know who's doing what. And he tries to get away from them and gets, you know, reaches into or gets into, starts to get into his vehicle. And they shot him. Right. And it's as ever, there's, there's, there's sort of several versions of, of what happens next. And, and, you know, I guess all you can really hope is that it doesn't lead to even more violent unrest. But I don't hold out much hope for that, really. I don't either. Um, you know, unfortunately, we have a we have a policing problem in this country and we have a we have a racial issue in this country. And it seems that no matter what happens under what circumstances, if a black man dies at the hands of police, there is going to be violence in this country. Yes. And that's very sad and tragic uh, and a terrible end to it all. But listen, LaDonna, thank you very much indeed. LaDonna Harvey reporting into us from San Diego, KOGO Radio, of course, uh, which you can listen to online if you so wish. Uh, she'll be telling us all, I'm sure, next week about what's been going on uh, in the Democratic and the Republican Party races, because tonight you'll be hearing Donald Trump make his address and his acceptance speech, effectively, uh, for the nomination for President of the United States from the Republican Party. Talk radio across the UK online, on DAB and on your smart speaker The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio If you enjoyed that be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1 Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app and if you have an opinion on the stories we cover we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say Mid-morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 